Hello, it's Tuesday the 5th of November and I'm Duncan Lament, Head of Research and Analytics. Thank you for joining us on today's podcast. So last week was Halloween. This week in the UK on the 5th of November, we celebrate Guy Fawkes Night or Bonfire Night as it's known. Curiously British tradition where we celebrate a failed plot to blow up the Houses of Parliament with gunpowder in 1605. And yet, without a hint of irony, 400 years after someone tried to blow up the Houses of Parliament, we are set to dissolve our Parliament in the run-up for the general election in December this year. True life and satire are truly colliding. So today, my guest is Simon Weber, one of our lead portfolio managers. It's always interesting to catch up with Simon to hear his take on what's going on at the individual company level. I guess from the outside, an environment where US and European equity markets are both up almost 25% this year, whilst at the same time the economic environment has been weak enough that central banks have been easing monetary policy, it's a bit of a conundrum, and it would be good to hear about things at the coalface. However, while equities are in a happy place, high-yield credit spreads and other barometer of risk appetite have been a bit shakier. They rose last week while equities were moving higher, and US high-yield spreads are now around 45 basis points above their lows from earlier in the year. Investment-grade spreads also a bit higher recently, but only slightly and from very tight levels. They're, they're not far above their tights of the year. On the economic front, Europe appears healthier than feared. Preliminary GDP data for Q3 has surprised to the upside in France, Italy and Belgium, but there's still a reasonable chance that Germany will have slipped into a technical recession in Q3, um, defined as two consecutive quarters of negative growth. And in addition, sentiment indicators have been worsening, which doesn't bode well for the future. In the US, um, the Fed cut rates by a quarter point last week, as expected, but I've indicated they think they've done enough for now and the bar for further easing has been raised. Friday's jobs report will have vindicated them on that front, with non-farm payrolls beating expectations and average earnings growing 3% year on year. So, Simon, I guess if we start off with just what's been going on in equity markets, we do have this environment where fundamentals don't appear in great shape, but markets appear to be um, in pretty good moods. What's your take on what's going on there? Well, yeah, Duncan, as you said in your introduction, we've had this incredibly strong equity markets in most parts of the world this year, despite uh, a very gloomy economic picture Mm. and um, a slowdown in growth expectations really across the US, Asia and Europe. Um, Markets seem to have been responding to the monetary easing that's been happening and looking forward. Equities are anticipatory and uh, we know that monetary easing and liquidity tends to work with a six to nine months lag. So I think the effects of that easing that we've seen this year from the ECB as well as the Fed um, are being anticipated. But also the last couple of months have brought some glimmers of light uh, on the Brexit front, which now looks more likely to get over the line, and the US-China trade relationship. And both of those issues are critical for corporate confidence uh, which we think, along with the, the actual trade disruption, the, the 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 ebbing of corporate confidence to invest and to make decisions has been a big part of that, the weaker economic momentum. Um, if those two things can find a, a way forward or a stabilisation, it, it could look brighter into 2020, which I think is also what equity markets are factoring in. So I guess it sounds like it's partly a reduction in some of those tail risks that have been um, hanging down over markets, but also um, 
so there's been some more confidence in markets that actually perhaps things are going to start to look a bit better. Um, I guess that point's interesting because the if you look at the forecast from Keith's economics team, they're still reasonably pessimistic about the earnings outlook for next year and, and the growth outlook. Is that something that you would disagree with or or, or or do you also believe that the things that don't look great on the earnings front but markets have actually been perhaps getting ahead of themselves? Well, earnings growth has definitely not been um, great over the summer and this third quarter reporting season. In fact, we've seen some real weakness from earlier or shorter cycle industrials. The US activity is now catching down to the rest of the world. Mm. Um, but there are, you know, Keith's work, they have a lot of um, scenarios and a couple of the scenarios like a trade war resolution um, do point to brighter potential. And we have said on our team all along that we thought the trade or the US-China situation was the biggest swing factor, not just a, a risk, but something that could go right. Okay. And therefore, you know, if it broke, if that relationship broke down further, it would be, a, it would be worse for the economy. But if they find a truce and the markets and companies build confidence that there may be another phase of um, of agreement after this initial phase that looks highly likely now, then companies will begin to have some visibility on their supply chains. They can make investments again. And, you know, we might well go back to um, the kind of situation we had 18 months ago. It was really the economy was humming along quite nicely until the whole trade, you know, wars, um, brought us into this industrial and capex down cycle. I guess, yes, I suppose psychologically many investors are, well, we spend a lot of our time thinking markets are close to all-time highs, the outlook doesn't look great, and everybody's looking at the downside risks. But what you're saying is actually you've been spending some time thinking about what are the potential upside risks, and everyone's worried about the trade situation getting worse, but we could equally see things move in the other direction. Yeah, and I want to be clear that you know we think markets are equity markets and as you mentioned credit spreads are tight you know, are factoring in some of this are looking ahead but in three months time the beginning of 2020 there will possibly be better visibility on on trade possibly be visibility on brexit the impacts of monetary easing coming through and those are three things that will be incrementally better Okay. Uh, can we dive down into some of the um, the more detail about what's been going on in equities because one of the interesting changes we've had has been around what's happened with the value growth axis. So value's had a decade or more of pretty dramatic underperformance compared with growth. And it, there were signs towards the end of the summer that actually it was starting to outperform. Um, in Europe, the MSCI value index had been up almost 3% compared with growth this quarter at one point, but actually gave back about 2% of that last uh, week alone. The US value revival was more limited um, and growth still looks ahead there. Is there Are there signs that there is a change in leadership going on here when you start to look at sectors, companies, styles, um, actually at, at the coalface? Well, it's not clear that we're in a new value regime, but it is clear that we're, we've ended that phase where relentless growth was outperforming every day. You know, that peak clearly peaked in August and now there's unclear trends. You know, yesterday again was a very powerful day in which um, more cyclical and value stocks outperform growth. And I think it is to do with this potential trough in global growth expectations and um, 
an improvement as we go into next year. But you know, this is not certain. It's you know, inconclusive data, and, and and whether a new trend is established will likely depend on whether uh, PMI surveys, forward-looking economic data, begin to improve to to support that. Because as you know, as we all know, the value parts of the market are dominated at the moment by more cyclical industries. Yeah, and I guess normally you would find that those value would do badly. Um, going into the downturn, but then would start to anticipate the recovery in earnings when they were coming out the other side. And actually that recovery phase was when value would typically have its sweet spot. Um, it, it may not be we're yet at that trough in, in earnings yet. Does that mean that this, they, when we were discussing before, I think you were suggesting they're almost anticipating things a bit earlier than they would have done normally. So that phasing might have actually um, started sooner than normal. Yeah, there's a couple of really good examples where this year certain industries, stocks in certain industries have already begun anticipating a turn in the cycle a bit earlier than history would mm-hmm. would tell you they normally do. And those are semiconductors and some of the short cycle European industrials like a Schneider or an SKF. Um, these stocks have been really good all year despite... Um, weakening industrial purchasing manager indices and in the semiconductor sector you know you normally um you know trough around the second derivative the worst kind of period of of revenue growth you know that's happening now but the semiconductor sector has been outperforming for six to nine months so you know maybe there are some kind of shifting patterns you can't always just look back at history and otherwise this job would be easy (laughs) um I guess related to the earnings outlook, um, something that um, often people think is the most boring subject in the world, but actually I think is really interesting and important, um, tax. Um, So the OECD has been arguing for a shift towards more of a global taxation system where tax is applied where economic activity takes place rather than just where the headquarters of an organisation are or where they've managed to funnel their profits. Um, I guess the aim here is to try to avoid people underpaying their tax by um, complex structures which minimise their liability. Um, And the EU is actually planning for a common consolidated corporate tax base across the region as well. Um, Obviously not so great for countries like Ireland, so this will have positive and negative impacts. What higher tax overall would be a negative for corporate earnings? Is, Is that... A worry? Or is this something that um, investors should be paying attention to? Uh, well, yeah, it's absolutely something that investors need to factor in. Um, but I think the last year's tax cuts in the US can be a good um, example of of how these tend to get factored in. You know, US equities, you know, took about a month or two for them to factor in the the new corporate tax level. It's like a one off. Um, impact on valuations, and mm-hmm. then the, then the market carries on. Um, this will take longer because it's not quite so clear how individual companies will be affected. But in our view, it's definitely a good thing that the world is getting to grips with some of the loopholes that have allowed um, more global companies to create an, un, un, you know, an, a, a competitive advantage just through the tax system. And um, you know, populations clearly want to, to see companies paying a fair level of tax. So in a, you know, in a, at a high level, it's a good thing for individual companies. Certainly, some of the big tech companies will be 
exposed to this, we need to um, expect them to to pay slightly higher levels of corporation tax. You know, gradually moving up over the next few years, probably as these new regulations and rules are put into practice. Yeah, I guess that one of the challenges will be getting any kind of global coordination on something like this, because if there's not a global response, then individual countries may still find ways to facilitate um, tax loopholes, I suppose. Yes. Um, My understanding of this new OECD initiative, though, is that it is... um, you know, been a real effort to get some coordination. Obviously, not everyone has exactly the same perspective on it, but there is some coordination in the way of that this is going to be applied now. Um, the devil will be in the details when we need to we need to go through that. But for example, in the SQ or sustainability quotient um, assessment that we use on our team in the Global Sustainable Growth Fund process, is a are companies paying their fair share of tax? Are they a good corporate citizen in that respect? Is one of the key things that we ask questions that we assess them on. Um, and you know, we don't necessarily see a low tax rate as a as a good long term thing because it's unlikely to be sustainable. Okay, that's interesting. So I guess there will be companies who will have been um, playing uh, the game with this, but actually. Um, that's part of the investment decision-making process, trying to assess um, if you're potentially underpaying tax. Yeah, yeah. I think also it f- feeds into the kind of sustainx analysis as well. Um, yeah, model. exactly. Um, related to that, I suppose, is the and related to the growth value story is the antitrust moves in the US and the idea that large corporations have potentially too much power and influence. Um, I know one of um, my team, Sean Markovich, has got a paper written on um, the implications of the rise of superstar firms, which will be coming out soon, which I think you've seen a copy of. Are there any new developments on that front? I guess given we've got a presidential campaign going to be heating up soon. Yeah, um, you know, the the temperature is rising on, on this issue in the United States, which is really important. Um, there are a number of under underway investigations of Facebook Alphabet already, in particular, mm-hmm. um, with most of the states already collaborating with federal agencies on it. So there's already investigations underway that a new, any new administration, whether it's Trump or the Democrats, will um, have to um, work with those ongoing investigations. They probably take some time, but there's clearly a new political dynamic um, within the Democrat. A presidential candidate, Elizabeth Warren, who's you know tied as a front runner now, mm-hmm. um, has made it a centerpiece of her um, of her policies to to get tough on the big tech companies. So I think, along with other sectors like healthcare, you know, environmental investments, um, other kind of telecommunications regulation, you know, these areas will be highly sensitive to the U.S. political, the polls, and and the the outcome of the U.S. presidential election because the two parties have very different perspectives on on those issues in a way um tech regulation is rising up the agenda of both of them but elizabeth warren would would looks like being much more radical in her approach if she was uh got the chance yeah i guess we saw i guess some examples of how it might play out with the trump clinton election when um there were statements about um pricing of drugs or healthcare, and then there would be large moves and share prices of companies in response to that and 
as this starts to build up ahead of steam, then it, we could potentially see more of that as well. Yeah, and you know, I don't want to make this a. This is not like a big prediction, but the because it does affect a number of big sectors. Um, you know, and if Elizabeth Warren were the candidate instead of Joe Biden, who's seen as much more moderate and market friendly, then there would probably be more, you know, fear in U.S. equities around uh, the Democrats winning that election. So, uh, you know, it will matter for the equity market who the Democrat presidential candidate is. Um, you know, and we should expect some volatility. You know, we've actually for some time been building up our exposure to the healthcare sector because we think that in particular is the one, probably because of previous elections, where the market's already very worried and pricing in um, U.S. electoral risk, maybe in some other sectors where um, we should expect increased volatility. Um, the risk reward looks quite attractive to us in some of the, the healthcare stocks like pharmaceuticals. Okay, and I guess suppose a similar message to the trade dispute that um, whilst everyone's focusing on the downside, actually there can be upsides benefits to some of this if it already gets baked into the price and things don't turn out quite as bad as, as everyone's fearing. Yeah, precisely. Um, and to get to like another big political issue is climate change as well. Obviously uh, an issue that you're kind of closely involved in as well. Um, should we be concerned from either an investment or actually just a more um, environmental standpoint about um, any developments on the, in the kind of political landscape? Well, I mean, I think the the most important political developments from a climate change perspective have happened over the last over the summer, and that was in Europe. I mean, and the new European commissioners, um, you know, led by um, von der Leyen, you know, come into office over the, the next two weeks, and you know, within the next the first hundred days, they've promised a, a very big green investment initiative and a tightening of the EU's climate change regulations. So, you know, that is all pushing on faster. Um, it's clearly a disaster for, you know, actually tackling climate change that the US is being so, yeah. um, you know, left behind and, you know, this week just pulling out formally of the um, Paris Agreement, which they'd already announced they were going to do. But within the United States, there's a huge amount of progress going on at a state level. Um, it's such a big you know, country and there's a lot of progress going on anyway. At some point, we'd expect the US to come back in and join you know, global initiatives on the climate change front. But it's obviously, it's not a new thing, but it's obviously a shame that they are you know, they're choosing to be left behind like this. Yeah, because on the, on the EU, the European Commission point, um, we had um, Kay Swinburne, who's a former MEP, um, uh, came in to speak to us on, on Monday in London here. And actually one of the points she made was that every single piece of legislation that is going through the Commission has to have an ESG angle to it. Now, it is you're, it's completely at the front of every decision that's been made right now. So I guess that just shows the, the importance that's been put on it. Yeah, I think that's a great example. Um, you know, we had a, a we were doing a piece of analysis this week around the European carbon price. There's a lot of tension in the European carbon market and the potential for much higher um, carbon emission prices over the next couple of years, which is a key part of the EU's policy arsenal for delivering their climate change objectives is setting a higher price on on those emissions. And the final thing I want to cover on today's call is just around um, the IPO market because there have been a spate of fairly poorly received 
IPOs this year. Um, so share prices trading well below the initial issue price. Um, what's is this a what's your view on this? Is this a problem with the quality of the companies, or is this a valuation problem that's coming on? Um, I mean, to generalise, I'd say it's probably a combination of you know the quality of the companies being you know some good companies coming to market, but you know perhaps not the truly exceptional you know must own and network effect type businesses that you know would have been represented by a Google or a Facebook. Um, you know, in previous years, um, the likes of Uber and Lyft, and then within Europe, Team Viewer, which is a software company that helps re- connect devices remotely. Um, they've all been interesting growth businesses, but um, in the case of Uber and Lyft, very challenged around profitability. And in the case of Team Viewer, some competitive challenges. So they, you know, they've they've had some issues, but the expectations for valuation have also been quite high, and it's been that combination of a strong market that gives the companies listing high expectations of what valuation they should get, and then, um, you know, particularly given over the summer, we've seen this peak in growth stock out performance uh, or an end to that relentless trend. Um, it's put some pressure on the newer companies coming to market. I guess people might also be interested to hear because um, how often or regularly we participate in IPOs because I guess people hope that there's going to be a post-IPO pop, like it gets priced in a certain way, the prices go up and that entices people to take part. Clearly things haven't always panned out that way. But do we, in terms of numbers, do we participate in most IPOs that get offered to us or, are we, or do we tend to be more selective? I'd say we probably participate in between five and ten percent of oh, the wow. IPOs that come to market. Um, you know, some of our more thematic strategies, like climate change or the disruption funds, will um, participate in. You know, in a in a in a good few of them. You know, for example, we participated in Beyond Meat in the climate change strategy when they listed earlier this year, but stock doubled immediately, and we reluctantly were a seller because it went above our IPO price. But we tend to only invest if we're prepared to own that company for a long term for the long term and um, we're very selective so we'd only buy an IPO if we make that investment if it was already listed so I guess the companies like Uber and Lyft um, and Team Viewer you mentioned were, did you participate in any of those ones no we you know we sat those out we looked at all those companies but we felt certainly in the case of the ride hailing industry the competition between Uber and Lyft is still intense there's regulatory concerns and cost concerns as as um, you know, what people are paid by those businesses, um, and we felt that 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 it was right to wait. And you know, their stocks have come back, so maybe they'll be interesting, and we'll take another look. I think it's a, it's a really good example of that of n- having some discipline, um, particularly when it comes to thinking about disruption, which is prone to to hype. And some of these companies are put forward as the, the poster child of disruption, effectively. But actually, the fact that we have. Um, it, being a bit more hard-headed about it from the investment standpoint is actually a, a kind of um, a really kind of credible part of, of the way we, we offer. Hmm. Um, okay, um, with that, uh, thank you very much, Simon, for joining me and thank you very much, everybody, for listening uh, on today's call. We've covered quite a range of different factors today. Um, I guess looking at what's been going on with, with equity markets and the way that some of the cyclical names have been moving 
uh, are starting to perform better in advance of a recovery, um, but even more in advance of that recovery than we've perhaps seen in the past. Political risk, whether it's on tax, whether it's on what it might mean for antitrust, whether it's what it might mean for climate change, is a very important factor to be paying attention to. And on the disruption side, um, the fact that we are actually pretty selective in the way we uh, participate in IPOs, I think, is, is a really great thing to hear as well. So thank you very much, Simon. And thank you to everyone else.